the thing that I learned was that people are going to get mad at you for stuff. And when you're a log cabin Republican, mm. the left hates you because you're Republican. Republicans don't like you because you're gay. And you sort of get used to standing in your space hmm. and saying, like, well, this is who I am and this is what I believe. And I think that really helped me when Trump came along and I had to walk away from my company that I was in and the world uh, that I had worked in for the past 18 years I felt prepared for that because Mm. I had done it before, where I had said, this isn't what I believe, and so I'm not going to do it. Sarah Longwell is one of the most powerful anti-Trump Republican strategists in the country. As a lifelong conservative, she's seen firsthand how the GOP has transformed over the last 20 years. Longwell is the publisher of The Bulwark, an anti-Trump conservative news and opinion website. She was also the first female national board chair of the Log Cabin Republicans, a GOP group representing LGBTQ conservatives. And she helped launch America's foremost coalition of anti-Trump Republicans, called Defending Democracy Together. That's the group behind initiatives like Republican Voters Against Trump and Republicans for the Rule of Law. Last week, we heard from journalist Tim Alberta about why white evangelical Christians have so thoroughly embraced Trumpism. And my conversation this week with Longwell is the second of two episodes we're releasing this month about the forces shaping the modern GOP. I spoke with Longwell shortly before the Iowa caucuses, which Trump won with a decisive margin. Ron DeSantis came in second, and Nikki Haley finished third, blunting her momentum going into the New Hampshire primary. That means that Trump now seems likely to crush the rest of his Republican primary opponents and face President Biden again in the general election. Which leaves many Americans wondering, why do so many voters still support the former president, even after the January 6th insurrection and his growing list of criminal charges? Sarah Longwell can really break down what's going on here. She's hosted countless focus groups with Trump voters and other hardcore conservatives to get a sense of why her fellow Republicans remain so loyal to Trump. And as the 2024 election season gets underway, Longwell is the perfect person to help us understand the attitudes of the typical Republican voter and how she's trying to change them. I'm Charlotte Alter, senior correspondent for Time, and this is Person of the Week. Okay, so I should tell our listeners, we're talking the Thursday before the Iowa caucuses, so we don't actually know how it's really going to shake up on Monday. The polls have Trump in a very solid lead. I'm curious, Sarah, what you think voters can take away from the results, given that Trump is very likely to win? Like, what does the Iowa caucus tell us? Yeah, so there's there's only one remotely interesting narrative in the primaries that isn't the narrative about how much Trump is dominating the Republican Party. And that is, is Nikki Haley going to emerge as any kind of a credible alternative? Can she win one state, that being New Hampshire, where she's polling much better because it has so many undeclared voters? It's basically a state that's kind of built for a more normal Republican. Hmm. And Look, I had hoped desperately that somebody could defeat Trump. And I'm no DeSantis fan. I mean, not even by the longest stretch of imagination. But I think that Trump presents a unique and dire threat to the country. And the fact that he is dominating by these kinds of margins puts him in a really strong position rolling into the general election. The fact that there's no real competition is bad. And so Mm -hmm. I'm rooting for Nikki. I'm rooting hard because she's the most normal Republican still in the race. And that's not saying much, low bar. 
But also, I would like him taken down a little bit, have to fight for it some. So I think she could win New Hampshire. And so if she were to win in New Hampshire, the bold case is that that disrupts the narrative of Trump's inevitability and people start taking a much harder look at her. For her to beat Trump in a meaningful way going into South Carolina or these other states would defy everything I know about Republican voters, which is that they do Hmm. not want a candidate like Nikki Haley. I mean, first of all, let let me just tell you about how these voters talk about Nikki Haley, two-time Trump voters. Many of them say right now, they are sort of looking at her for the first time, uh, and they go, I don't hate her, uh, which (laughs) is not an affirmative comment. But generally to them, she looks like a pre-Trump politician an establishment Hmm. Republican, which is the death knell for a candidate these days. Because the the thing to understand about Trump and the Republican Party is he both got elected by the fact that there was something that people like me didn't see going on in the Republican Party, sort of a populist uprising and anti-establishment fervor. But he accelerated that trend to the point where now lots of kind of just middle-of-the-road Republicans who aren't paying super close attention also have just a general anti-establishment sentiment. And so one of the things they say is, like, we want America first policies and we are not going back. And people say that. They believe Mm. that Trump represented a break, a shift in a direction that they liked and that she represents the old Republican Party that Mm. they didn't like, where they're the uniparty and they compromise too much with Democrats and they don't stand up for people and they're all in it to get rich and Trump's really there for them and puts their interests first. And if there's consolidation in the race, sometimes people have this sense of like, oh, there's consolidation, all these other people will go to Nikki. No, they won't. DeSantis, Ramaswamy, those voters all go to Trump Mm -hmm. and they just make Trump stronger. That's interesting. So what you're saying is that a lot of these voters that are with these other candidates, they're not necessarily anti-Trump voters. You can't count on them being anti-Trump voters. That's right. And and look, the way to think about the Republican Party, there's kind of a quick and easy thing that I use, which is about 35 percent of the Republican Party is always Trump. Trump's their only guy. There's another 30 percent that is kind of maybe Trump. And then there was a 30 percent uh, that was like move on from Trump. Hmm. So um, I want to back up for a second before we dive back into how Republican voters are thinking about this, because I really think you have such unique insights to offer us. But I want to hear a little bit more about you. Um, Can you tell us about the community that you grew up in in Pennsylvania? Um, So I actually grew up in central Pennsylvania in Perry County. I grew up in a place called Millerstown, Pennsylvania. It's an 800-person town with a two-hour grocery store and no stoplights. And so I grew up in a pretty rural part of Pennsylvania. And we moved when I was 14 to a place where my parents still live. And I went to private school. So I actually had this weird experience where I spent most of my formative years in a small town going to a somewhat Mm. rural-ish public school and then to a private school in Harrisburg. And then eventually my parents moved. And so the politics of the place, it was everybody went to the same Methodist church. Uh, I sang in the children's choir. And it was a wonderful place to grow up, except for the fact that it was 100% white. And it was like a, you know, small rural community. There was a lot of great stuff about it. I grew up fishing. I grew up outside. I grew up with like a gang of boys on our little bikes riding around, tons of freedom. And it was really formative for me. But it was also a kind of place... And I think in a good way, it was the kind of place where everybody had their guns in their living room, like in a case. You took hunter safety as a course at the school. You got the first day of deer hunting season off. And it's Trump country now. And 
It was also great. I don't know. There's a reason I'm nostalgic sometimes for just the small town life of knowing all your neighbors, walking outside and having a bunch of people, you know, kind of keeping tabs on you. Mm-hmm. And I remember first time I got a bank book, I like had $15 in a bank account and I went to the bank in the, the little bank in town and said, I would like to take out a dollar, please, because I wanted to go to the store and get a soda. And the bank teller was like, I know your parents. She like got her purse and like gave me a right. dollar. Like, she wasn't going to let me take a dollar out of the bank. And so it was like that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. And so did you have a moment of political awakening? Like, did you have a moment maybe a little bit later when you thought, you know, hey, actually, I'm really interested in politics and I'm I'm really interested in conservative politics in particular? Yeah. So I think because I grew up in kind of a small town that had sort of those default Republican values. When I went to this private school, I had this history teacher, and he was super progressive. And I loved him. But he was really liberal. And we would fight all the time or argue. And I was just like, this is the best. I loved being in a school that was like much more diverse with a lot of different kinds of people. And I thought that was really fun. But I also sometimes felt like there was a little bit of derision about the place where I came from. Like people, when I got there, were like, do they wear shoes where you guys live? You know, there's like a, you come from some podunk small town, which of course I did. Um, Anyway, for me, I just, I also like to argue and talk about politics. So I took an after school philosophy course, knock off the second half of basketball practice so I could do that. And I just had these professors and they were more left-leaning but they would argue with me. And I loved that. And I, I got a little attached, I think, too, to just being the contrarian in class. I liked pushing back on some of the liberal orthodoxy. And I thrived in that environment, too. So I'm really interested in this idea of your conservatism being kind of also tied up with a, a little bit of a contrarianism. I think that we're seeing that a lot now, particularly among younger conservatives. How much of this period of your development was really believing in some core conservative principles versus rejecting some liberal orthodoxy? Yeah, that's a good question. So here's the thing that I felt like I believed. I believed that personal responsibility really mattered, Hmm. that people should be responsible for the choices that they make, that when we're deciding policy, that we should give people maximum freedom as long as they weren't hurting anybody else. Mm -hmm. I always had kind of a libertarian bent that came from the belief that I didn't like being told what to do and I didn't like the idea of the Hmm. government telling us what to do. Um, There was a lot about conservatism and limited government that made sense to me early, like reading the Federalist Papers, thinking about the idea that government should be limited and try not to intrude on people's lives. The other thing was just the kind of reflexive patriotism that I felt. Hmm. I also had, like, my mom immigrated here from England. She had an immigrant's zeal for America still. So mm-hmm. there's like Americana stuff all over our house, like the signing of the Declaration of the Independence <laughs> still over the mantle. But I did have what I felt was just a, a real reflexive kind of like, I'm on America's side hmm. most of the time. And I would say that has been one of the places that obviously, as I've gotten older, I've I still believe in a lot of those things. I was at a Caps game with my kid the other day, and I was, like, telling him to put his hand over his heart. And so some of those cultural things stick with me, but I also, you know, I had a pretty unnuanced view of the world at that time that I would say is different now. So you've been married to your wife, Karen, for almost 10 years now since the early days of your political career. How did your sexual identity fit into this political identity? Yeah, it didn't fit great. 
I was a senior in college when I kind of like said, all right, uh, I think this is what's happening here. And also like started dating a girl for the first time. Mm-hmm. And I remember one of my political science professors, I asked if I could talk to her and she like got Wendy's and like went somewhere and talked. And I was like, so I think I'm gay and I, I'm going to work for this conservative think tank uh, in Delaware and I'm just so nervous. And she told me something that turned out to be completely true, which is that the people you're going to be around in this sort of more sort of intellectually conservative environment, like, you'll be okay. Now, that turned out to be true eventually, I would say, as a young 22, 23, 24-year-old. Like, in that job, I was the communications director. But my first thing I had to do was go on the road with Rick Santorum for his Mm. book tour for the book It Takes a Family. And Rick Santorum had just gotten famous for comparing homosexuality to bestiality. Wow. And while I was doing this job where I would, like, travel around with him and, like, carry his books, his communications director was, like, outed because there was this moment in time where Republicans who were gay were getting outed basically on the Hill. And so I felt like the decision might be out of my hands. Hmm. And so I, I started telling people. And I also left that job. What I remember is one of the reasons I, I left the job and uh, the Santorum stuff was so hard. So I was at an event with him and there were these two women uh, protesting the, or not, but I'm protesting. They're just standing there. But they had this like tween daughter and she was holding a sign out towards the road that said, my two moms take me bowling. Uh-huh. And I was like, that's it. I'm out. I gotta go. Can't do it. More with Republican political strategist Sarah Longwell in a minute. So you've played this tremendous role in shaping a movement within the Republican Party that is against Donald Trump. Thinking about your own position within this party, what in those early days of Trump's presidency made you say, okay, I need to take action or I need to be doing something different? So what happened was, like, when he got elected, I spent a while sort of actually reassuring other people, my friends, that it was going to be okay. Hmm. Like, I remember writing an email on a chain of a group of friends who were upset being like, you know what? It's okay. Republicans are responsible people. He will be constrained. This is why we have checks and balances. Don't worry. And also, all the Republicans I knew were opposed to Trump. But, you know, I don't know. These Republicans now are like, whoa, look at this. Look what we've stumbled into. We're in the majority and all this have all this power. And so people were trying to figure it out. And I think I was sort of like, well, maybe it'll be okay. Like, I had done everything I could think of at the time within sort of my professional constraints to defeat Trump in the election. But now I was, like, kind of unsure what to do. I was the first female board chair of the Log Cabin Republicans and um, had other just sort of Republican roles, Republican clients. But it was the the Muslim ban, which I'm not allowed to call the Muslim ban because that's technically not what it was. Yeah. Um, So it was called Executive Order 13769, protecting the nation from foreign terrorist entry into the United States. Um, But everybody called it the Muslim ban. That's right. And this was it. It was watching them figure out how to turn it into the right legalese to essentially do what he'd done that everybody found objectionable and make it respectable. And I was like, oh, no, this is what it's going to be like. And then he did the trans military ban. 
And again, I watched people I knew in the gay Republican community. I was watching all the people I knew get on board in like an excited way who had hated him. And I was much more like, I don't think so. Uh, but I started going to these meetings. There were these meetings around D.C. of just sad Republicans. And I think there was a real sense among us that this wasn't the true Republican Party, that this was the product of a fractured field. You know, you had Rubio and you had Christie and you had Jeb and all these people and none of them dropped out. And there was this like way in which Trump was able to kind of be over in his burn it all down lane with this 30 percent and win and then get momentum. And, and so we thought it was like it was a historical accident and not a true reflection of what the Republican Party wanted. Hmm. And so I wanted to figure out, OK, well, what do we do next? And then it was the, – the thing that spurred me to action was firing James Comey. Yeah. They were like, well, we're going to appoint a special counsel, and he was threatening to fire Mueller. And I had met Bill Kristol in this – one of these rooms of sad Republicans, and I was like, well, what if we start something called Republicans for the Rule of Law, and we help just provide air cover for Republicans who want to do the right thing? And – that was when we first formed an organization called Defending Democracy Together. It's when we first started raising money. It's when I first started to get public with my own opposition. Right. So, okay, let's get to it because I feel like you are better positioned than almost anybody to help us understand, you know, going into this election year, what has happened to the Republican Party in the last 12 years. Um, so I'm curious if you were in a documentary – 40 years from now, and you had to synthesize what you learned in this time, watching it happen in real time, watching what's happening to your party in real time, what would you say? Um, the thing that I find crazy is that when Trump came on the scene and, you know, Access Hollywood came out and we all thought he's done, right? Watching people get inured to Donald Trump's behavior. Watch people start to warm up to it. Watch people decide that it wasn't wrong. Watch people rationalize it, hmm. right? And the thing about rationalizations is that they feed off of each other. So once you've rationalized Access Hollywood, and then once you've rationalized Trump standing on stage with Vladimir Putin and siding against America's intelligence community, and once you've rationalized the both sidesing of Charlottesville uh, and the march there, like, over time, like, the sunk costs right now, when you say, like, well, why is Trump still dominating the party? Most of these people have voted for him at least twice, if not three times. They uh, have already lost friends and family and relationships over this. They have argued about this over countless dinners. They have formed communities around the fact that they're willing to support Trump and other people hate him. And so their relationship with him now runs extremely deep. Well, so you spend now a lot of your time running focus groups. I do. Where you talk to a broad swath of Republican voters. What are some of the most surprising things that you're hearing from them? So my armor is pretty hard at this point. Like, I've listened to a lot of voters talk about why they don't think gay people should get married. Like, the anti-immigrant sentiment is extremely high. I, the extent to which immigration is playing a huge role in driving people towards the Republican Party, including among Hispanics, hmm. Democrats do not take it nearly seriously enough. They don't realize that this is a big part of why people love Donald Trump, is they think he's one of the only people in the country who truly understands the depth of the immigration problem. Um but with Nikki Haley in the race, I've listened to a lot of voters talk about why they think a woman shouldn't be president, um, including a lot of women. That's so interesting. There was a New Hampshire group. Um, five of the seven 
said they were more comfortable with a man than a woman for president. Um, and so I've just seen a lot of that. So what was their reasoning? Yeah, so, and I've now I've heard this. It wasn't just that group. It's a ton of people in the groups. Uh, one, they think that they won't be strong enough internationally with other world leaders that we're dealing with some really bad guys. This is something Donald Trump's really convinced people of. I mean, it's true, right? There's a lot of bad guys. Donald Trump becomes friends with all those bad guys and is like, uh, works with all those bad guys. But Donald Trump has been able to convince people that it is his ability to forge these relationships that keeps everybody safe. And like, even if you tell people, well, Trump's crazy, uh, you can't have his finger on the button. People are like, oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, he's crazy. And that makes other people scared of him. That makes these other world leaders afraid of him. He's unpredictable. They don't know what he's going to do. It becomes an asset. Everything about him that is an actual liability and that frightens people like me yeah. is like a big asset to these voters. And so they don't think she's strong enough. People talk a lot in terms of strength and weakness. Biden's weak, Haley's weak, um, and Trump is strong. And like people talk about authoritarianism and strong men. And I think sometimes that stuff can be overstated in the sense that if you asked a voter, like, do you want there to be an authoritarian, they would be like, what does authoritarian mean? But they do want someone strong. And so they say that a lot. So everything that you're saying makes total sense to me in terms of what I've also heard from voters in my time covering this. Um, one thing I'm kind of curious about, though, is that there are some aspects to 2024 that are different. First of all, it's the first time Trump's on the ballot since January 6th. He's got a lot of legal problems, a lot. Um, and also, there are people who voted for him when they were in their 80s in 2016 and are no longer with us. There are people who have been really turned off by January 6th. I'm wondering if you think any of these dynamics make 2024 fundamentally different than 2016 or 2020. Uh, I think they do make it fundamentally different, but I actually think less in terms of Trump and more in terms of who we are. Because I think if the country elects Donald Trump after seeing what we saw on January 6th, the extent to which we will have become desensitized to the very things that undergird us as a liberal democracy, to the things that make us Americans, just peaceful transfer of power, just how we do things, if we see somebody who made an assault on that and say, yeah, we're going to affirmatively reelect you again as a country. I just think that says a ton about us. But here's the thing. One of the things I hear in the focus groups from swing voters a lot um, and from Republicans who are two-time Trump voters but don't plan to vote for him again, they're out after January 6th. And this is the thing that I always want people to understand is that the gap between what base voters demand and what swing voters will tolerate has gotten very large. Yeah. And so, you know, in 2022, Republicans, they had bigger turnout than Democrats. Democrats still won in key races because a lot of right-leaning independents and soft GOP voters voted for the Democratic candidate over the extreme GOP candidate. And I think that right now you're going to see Trump in this incredibly dominant position in the Republican primary because he does own the base and the base is quite large, large enough to win just about any Republican primary. But as a result, the Republican Party continues to bleed off mostly both college-educated suburban voters and then sort of white working class Obama-Trump voters. Those tend to be the two types mm -hmm. of swing voters. Now, 
Where Trump is doing better, though, is with Hispanic voters, with black men. Like, there are demographics that are sort of moving towards them. And even as, like, young people are checking out, you talk about the actuarial table of people who've moved on. There's also a bunch of people who've moved in. And for a lot of them, you know, Donald Trump is, like, an insane thing that happened for the rest of us. For them, they've all – he's all they've known politically. And so he seems much less abnormal. Right. And so – there's been a ton of political realignment going on under the scenes. The tectonic plates that have shifted in terms of what makes up the parties has really moved. And I, I think that there are a lot of people that I describe as having a, a Reagan hangover where they were sort of Republicans running on fumes and they're kind of waiting for Donald Trump to be done and for the old party to return. Mm-hmm. Old party's never coming back. It's never coming back. Paul Ryan's never coming back. Nothing. There's no Mitch McConnell is not going to sit. It's over. It's Donald Trump's party now. And so the question is, is like, can you take the people who don't want that, who are not part of that base of support, even though the base is over 50 percent, and build a big pro-democracy coalition that spans from Liz Warren to Liz Cheney? And I think like that's my work. My work is how do you build that coalition, not just to win elections, but to change our culture to make what's happening to the Republican Party unacceptable. So can you tell me a little bit about how you plan to do that? What works to help people understand that message. Yeah, so one of the things that I've learned just doing communications work, but really doing this communications work, is how tribal people are. And that's one of the reasons why so many people who don't like Trump voted for Trump and why so many people who still now are uncomfortable with his behavior, how they rationalize it to themselves because their whole tribe is doing it. And our tribal instincts, they run really deep in us, right? They've built in from the beginning of human history so that we're safe and we don't get eaten by lions or bears, right? The tribe protects us. And so we don't like getting kicked out of the tribe. Getting kicked out of the tribe is very, very scary. And so one of the things that I think about for communications is how do you build micro-tribes? And so in 2020, we built Republican voters against Trump. And we were putting out stuff that was just hammering Trump, would go viral on Twitter. That didn't actually work with swing voters. It wasn't persuasive because the people smashing the retweet button were liberals or Democrats, like, who loved the message. And so it's probably not that persuasive with swing voters. And so we started testing different methods of communicating. And the thing that worked the most was finding real Republicans to say, look, I've been a Republican my whole life, but I'm not voting for Donald Trump. And I'm going to vote for Joe Biden for X, Y, Z reasons, whatever their reasons are. And we we worked really hard to get our first 100 testimonials. And once we released that campaign— They just came pouring in from other people. We got more than a 1,000, and we turned those into ads. And they had the most persuasive content because people were able to be like, that's how I feel. I don't want to give up my Republican identity. I want to be on this tribe of people who, like, say, no, I'm a Republican, but I'm against this guy. And even if it means voting for a Democrat this time, I'm going to do it. And then we did that again in 2022. We ran Republican voters against, you know, Carrie Lake and Herschel Walker. We did these sort of Mm hyper-local ones. And this time, you know, uh, we plan on doing Trump voters against Trump. And there's a real number of people who are out after January 6th. That was the thing that they said, I've been holding my nose voting for this guy, but I will not do it again. And I think you have to build permission structures in your communications material and give people a place to go and say, look, I'm going to be part of this tribe that doesn't make me say I'm a Democrat, but refuses to participate in where the Republican Party is headed. Sarah, it's been so great talking with you at the start of this election year um, to help us all understand the work you're doing and really understand how Republican voters are thinking about this election. But now I want to get to some of the small, everyday things that shape you in a section we like to call The Last Time. So, when is the last time you watched an animated movie? 
Ooh, animated. Um, well, I've got a five and a seven-year-old, so I don't know that I've watched one for myself, but I've, I mean, I've seen Cars one at least 12 times in the last six months. Yeah, we're a Moana family, so um, I understand the struggle is real. <laughs> um, uh, when's the last time you went hunting? Oh, it was when I grew up in rural Pennsylvania, uh, and I was at least under 14. When is the last time you fought about politics with a friend? Uh, I mean, every day. That's like my whole MO is my best friend, <laughs> JBL, on my Bulwark podcasts and the secret podcast. All we do is fight. You know, I we just had Tim Alberta on the show, and I asked him this same question, but I'm curious for your answer as well. When's the last time you were surprised by something Trump said? Uh, love Tim Alberta. Um, I tend to be the most surprised by Trump now when he says normal things, hmm. right? Like, I, he didn't do this. He actually, over Christmas, said, like, people should go rot in hell. But if he had just said, Merry Christmas and goodwill toward men, I would have been shocked. And so whenever he does something normal, I'm trying to think about what the most recent, like, semi-normal thing this is. But, you know, like, he's shown some recent acumen on abortion, for example, where he kind of, like, mm -hmm. he'll hit Ron DeSantis for being too tough on abortion or something like that. And so whenever he starts to sound normal, I'm always like, ugh, I'm surprised. And also, it reminds me that he does have decent political instincts. Hmm, interesting. Um, for the record, Tim Alberta said 2015 was the last time he was surprised by something Trump said. <laughs> okay, last question. When is the last time you listened to your favorite song? Well, I have decided that I need to listen to more music and fewer political mm -hmm. podcasts. And I made a playlist called uh, Bangers with a Z. Okay, I need to hear yeah, what's yeah, on yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my new favorite person. So it's a lot of country. I do a lot of country stuff, but uh, Jason Isbell has become like my new mm. person, but also Maren Morris. My church is like one that I listen to uh, over and over again. Um, wow. I haven't even heard that song. I'm going to have to go listen to it now. This is great. I didn't know that we were also going to get music tips. This is fantastic. <laughs> Sarah, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for coming on our show. This was such an interesting conversation. Um, I really enjoyed getting a chance to, to talk with you. So thank you. Thanks for having me. If you want to hear more from Sarah Longwell, you should definitely check out her podcast, The Focus Group. Thank you so much for listening to Person of the Week. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to hear from you. So please send your tips or thoughts on our show or ideas of who we should have on next to personoftheweek at time.com. I'm Charlotte Alter. See you next week. Person of the Week is hosted by Charlotte Alter. It's produced by Nina Bisbano and India Witkin. Our senior producer is Ursula Summer. Our story editor is Katie Feather. This episode was mixed by Joe Plord. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. Joseph Frischmuth is our fact checker. Person of the Week is a co-production of Time Studios and Sugar 23. At Time, our executive producers are Dave O'Connor, Michael Erlinger, and Sam Jacobs. At Sugar 23, our executive producers are Mike Mayer, Michael Sugar, and Liam Billingham. Sasha Mathias is the head of audio at Time. You can find us online at time.com slash person of the week and wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>